listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm going to tell you right out from the start that this is going to be a very different episode. And I'm even going to start it off in a different way. Uh, this is uh, this is not, I, this is going to seem a little bit ripped from the headlines, but it's it wasn't intended to be that way. I actually recorded this conversation with, uh, I'm going to share with you with human rights activists Gerard Horton and Salwa Duabis. I, I recorded this with them long before the latest outbreak of violence in Israel and the occupied territories. I, I, I come by this honestly. These are friends of mine who I got to know 10 years ago uh, when I was working in that region in a kind of a little known part of my, my, my story that I'll, I'll share with you a little bit of. But, but what happened is, is that after I recorded the interview, boom, all this violence happens. And, and, and I mean, it got to the point where like I recorded with Ger- Gerard and Sola. They were in East Jerusalem when I was talking to them. I had to call them up and say, are you guys still okay? Is it okay for me to post this episode even? Because I don't want to cause any more trouble for them. Because they are already kind of in the crosshairs. A lot of people don't like the work that they do. Uh, which they'll talk about. And I'll try to give you some context for. But they said, yeah, actually, we are all right. We're keeping our heads down. And it would be really good for you to share this conversation right now because it's about stuff that matters. It's about, really, the stuff that has created a lot of the pressure that has once again exploded into violence. And... uh so I'm excited to share this conversation with you, but, but I feel like I need to give you a little bit of context first. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I got involved with this stuff. And then I'll give you a quickie rundown of some of the important dates and times in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And anyone who knows anything about the region will go like, that is a shabby summary. I'm telling you in advance. There is no summary that is not shabby and also one-sided. Even if you're trying to be both-sided, because n- nobody will like you. No, not, you. There's no narrative you can give of that region that everybody will go like, yeah, that's what happened. Somebody's going to disagree with it. That's, it's, it's a region of many stories. Um, but my story is a little bit simpler. So in 2011, 10 years after the 9-11 attacks, uh, I am struggling to figure out what I'm going to do as my Christian faith is, is, is eroding um, and what comes next for me. I'm in Cincinnati doing my thing in the inner city, but not knowing how I'm going to make a living, what I'm going to do with myself, where do I fit into this world? And uh, my, my best friend from college, Jerry White, sort of seeing me in distress says, hey, why don't you come work with me for a little while on this project I'm working on in the Middle East called the Abraham Path Initiative? I was like, what are you talking about, man? I mean, by this time, Jerry had was already kind of a big deal in international nonprofit work. He had worked on the international campaign to ban landmines. He himself is a landmine survivor. Honestly, he himself would be an amazing person to talk to on this podcast. He's got a, he's got a story. Um, 
But by that time, Jerry was, he was at the end of that project and he was doing some other things. He was getting into teaching. Uh, he, he's, he's a high flyer. He's a big shot. He shouldn't be hanging around with people like me. Um, but he said, no, you should come work with me. And I like, Jerry, I know nothing about the Middle East. I've never been to the Middle East. I don't know when, like, I, I don't know, what are you talking about? And it turned out the Abraham Path Initiative was a walking trail that they were trying to pioneer. He and a, and, and, and a guy named William Urey, who, another high flyer, guy who had written a book called Getting to Yes, and was a Harvard professor in the Harvard Negotiation Project, one of the world's foremost kind of peacemakers, you know, big TED Talk, all that stuff. So William and Jerry are working on this Abraham Path which is literally they're building, they're trying to pioneer a hiking trail through the Middle East, following the footsteps of the legend of Abraham, thinking that it will be a unifying concept because Jews, Muslims, and Christians all claim Abraham as their, as their spiritual father. And the idea is, is to create this walking trail and get a bunch of people walking it who will experience a kind of hospitality and kindness to strangers coming at them from people of all different stripes and that this will be a kind of a, a common ground experience. And, and they'll be understanding, they'll bring some money into the region, help some economic development. They've got big ideas. And uh, it didn't take long uh, with me on the project. I, I worked with them on something called 9-11 walks that were meant to highlight peacemaking and, and connection across boundaries. And they were, they were really cool. I was not really cool. I was not the world's most organized organizer. Um, and pretty quickly it emerged that like, I'm learning a lot about the Middle East, um, getting to go on some really cool trips, but I'm not, I'm not adding value. Um, and eventually they figured out, like, ah, I don't know about this guy. And I'm figuring like, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing real good. But by that time, I through Jerry and those guys, I'd gotten to be friends with some people at an organization called the Telos Group. And what they were doing was they were bringing ignorant Americans into the region and exposing them to what they called dual narrative pilgrimages, where they would get to know Jews and understand the Israeli narrative of that region. And they would also get to know Muslims, Arabs, Palestinians uh, of different kinds and people that working in the, in the occupied territories and in refugee camps and get to know that narrative. And then they, they would sort of understand that like, oh, there's more going on here than what we get told on either NPR or Fox News. And uh, – so they, they were especially focused on trying to get evangelical Christians to care about both sides of the conflict instead of to be just blindly pro-Israeli. And, uh, and I remember them saying to me, you know, like, do, you, do you, you speak the language of evangelical Christians? And I was like, yes, I, I speak that language. Um, and... They brought me on to kind of help them understand how to talk to Israeli, or rather how to talk to um, evangelical Christians about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And uh, I, once again, I, I learned a bunch. I met my friend Rich Dzinski, who was working at Telos, and he was the one who gave me my first Robert Ingersoll book and sort of opened that whole world to me and, and kind of showed me that there was another way of pursuing goodness, a secular way. Um, so that was a big part of my life. But it was in the middle of that time, I was on a trip with Telos. Um, scouting something for somebody. And I ended up with Gerard and Salwa, who were, were regular visitors to Telos pilgrimages because they were just great people to, to sort of guide people through different parts of the, of the region. Uh, Gerard is, w w it was an Australian 
lawyer who was in the region working on human rights abuse. And Salah was a Palestinian human rights activist. Um, we didn't know that they were kind of into each other at the time. Later, they got married. Later, they founded this thing called Military Court Watch, which I will be talking to them about in a moment. But in the meantime, Gerard took me to visit some friends of his in the West Bank in a little village. And while we were there, just chatting with some neighbors, there were some Israeli settlers who came to use the well across the street, um, which was fenced off and only available to Israelis in the settlement that was nearby. And some Palestinian kids started throwing rocks at them and some Israeli soldiers showed up. And before I knew it, they were shooting the kids with rubber bullets and we were all running back to the village and the soldiers came up the hill and tear gassed us and we're hiding out in the house. And then they come through with these big trucks shooting skunk water, which is this smelly, smelly water that doesn't have any military value or security value. It's just meant to humiliate people um, and to make their lives miserable. And I was like, what is going on here? And Gerard was my sort of patient guide. And, and he, he, he taught me a lot on that day about what happens when one group has to occupy another group. And when they feel like it's crucial for their security and the other group feels like it's destructive of their, of, of their sense of independence and well-being. Uh, I had just never been around a military occupation before. And, and we'll get into that with Gerard and Salwa. Point being that while I was there, I learned that you, you, you can't understand the present unless you know a little bit of the history. And so, listen, I, I'm, if you want to skip ahead to the conversation, I'll ask John to come back and drop in a little sentence here where he says, skip to this point. Um, skip to 20 minutes. And that'll be great. But if not, I'm just going to give you like this little history lesson, okay? And the little history lesson goes like this. This conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it actually is at least a hundred, the modern conflict, the way it is right now, it's like a hundred years old. And it started long before there was a state of Israel. Uh, it started right after World War I when the British took control of the area that was then just called Palestine, kind of an undifferentiated region uh, of the Middle East that was controlled by the Ottoman Turkish Empire that got wiped out in World War I. And the British took it over. They sort of invaded it and took it over and they became kind of the occupying force there. And at the time, the land was occupied by a Jewish minority and an Arab majority, but there weren't that many of anybody. It's a very loosely, lightly populated region. And uh, there was a lot of tension between those groups, especially when British was Britain was given the task of establishing a national home in Palestine for the Jewish people, and Britain had already promised to create an Arab country there um, to, to, to ensure Arab independence. So it was kind of across purposes. And uh, the Jews said, hey, this is our ancestral home. And the Arabs said, yeah, no, it's kind of our ancestral home too. And for the next 30 years, um, there was conflict and tension in that region under British rule, and two things were happening. The Palestinians were having a lot of children. Their population grew, like, like doubled and tripled. At the same time, 
lots of Jewish people were immigrating there from all over the world, and especially from Europe, especially as you get towards the persecution in Europe leading up to the Holocaust. And so by the time you get to 1947, there's a lot more people in the region. There's a lot more tension in the region. And at that point, the United Nations votes for Palestine to be split into a Jewish and an Arab state and Jerusalem to be like sort of an international city that nobody really owns, but everybody can visit because there's all these holy sites there and all that. And the Jewish leaders say, okay, that sounds like a good deal to us. And the Arab side says, no, we don't think so. This doesn't seem fair to us. And a year later, the British go, you know what? We're not going to be left holding the bag here. We're, we, we're out of here. And they just left. And at the same moment that the, Jew, that, that the British are leaving, I mean, it's orchestrated. The same moment the British are leaving, the Jewish leaders declare the creation of the state of Israel. And most of the rest of the world says, you know, we got to respect that, especially in the, in, 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 in the guilt-ridden light of the Holocaust. Yeah, we've got to respect that. And so Israel, Israel declares that they're a country and immediately all the Arab countries around go like, that sucks for the Palestinians. And we declare war on Israel. And there's a war, the war of 1948. And, and in the midst of all that warfare, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in that region were driven from their homes or, depending on the narrative you're listening to, abandoned their homes. Um, but in any case, they left. And that's what Palestinians today call the Nakba, al-Nakba, the catastrophe when they were driven out of their own country. And by the time the fighting ends a year later, Israel controls most of the country and most of the Palestinians are in, in Jordan, which at that time included the West Bank, or they're in Egypt, which at that time included Gaza. And so there are loads of refugees in the West Bank, loads of refugees in Gaza, loads of refugees in the rest of the, those Arab countries. And you got, and, uh, and it's, 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 it's tense. And there was never a peace agreement. Each side blamed the other. And there were more wars and there was more fighting. There was always conflict in that region. But, but, but for the time being, Jerusalem was divided. The, the, the main, was divided between the Israeli forces in the West and the Jordanian forces in the East. So it was like Berlin. You have, a, you have a, kind of a walled city. That, that was the, the borderline, and it was tense. And that tension grew and grew and grew. And then in 1967, another date, 48 you have to know, 67 you have to know, because in 67, there's the Six-Day War. And Israel, sort of sensing that these Arab countries are about to attack it, decides to attack them first. And when the smoke clears six days later, Israel's got East Jerusalem. They've taken that over the whole West Bank of the Jordan River. Like they, they control everything up to the West Bank of the Jordan River. And, and Jordan is now pushed back on the other side. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, the Ga Gaza, they've taken that away from, from Egypt. They've, got, they've taken the Golan Heights from Syria. They've taken the Sinai Peninsula from, from Egypt. Um, Israel's expanded. And most Palestinian refugees are now living in Gaza and the West Bank and in these neighboring countries, and nobody's happy. And Israel says, look, you guys are never coming home. We can't let you back in here. You can't, get, you can't have your land back. And if you came in, there would be too many of you and we wouldn't be a Jewish state anymore. So 
you're out of luck. So you've got hundreds of thousands of refugees that are sort of locked out. And uh, Israel still occupies. All these years later, Israel still occupies the West Bank. And it, it, although it pulled out of Gaza, uh, Gaza's kind of like, it, it, it gave it over to the Palestinian leadership, but Israel still controls the water, the, the borders, what comes in, what comes out, the electricity. I mean, they're effectively still in charge of Gaza. And Israel claims all of Jerusalem. It says, it's, it's all our town. And the Palestinians are going, no, 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 East Jerusalem is going to be the capital of our future Palestinian state. And for many years, you've heard about the two-state solution. And the idea was that at some point, this occupied territory would become the state of Palestine. But what most people don't, like who hear about it, they don't understand what they mean by this. But over the last 50 years, Israel has built settlements. And that sounds like a bunch of tents, but it's not. It's like a bunch of small towns and cities in those areas. And so now there are, there are more than 600,000 Israelis who live in the West Bank or in East Jerusalem. And so what you have now is you have a situation that would be very, very difficult to create any state there um, because there's so many Israelis who own property there and who have sort of requisitioned off all sorts of stuff. And the, the Israeli government controls the electricity there, the water there, the, basically controls the whole region. And the Palestinian citizens are getting squeezed as, as more and more Israelis move in there. And it is under those circumstances that of, of a, like a 60-year occupation that sort of has no end in sight that Gerard and Salwa work on this thing called Military Court Watch which is basically saying, look, if Israel's going to occupy the West Bank, um, that means that they have to follow international law in the West Bank. And we're here to make sure that they do that and that they treat the children that they are occupying and the families that they are occupying and the land and, and, and the communities that they're occupying under the basic modicum of international law. And it is with that context that uh, with that, that kind of historical context of like you've got this conflict that erupted and now you've got the Israelis sort of saying like we need to control all this region because otherwise there'll be terrorism happening and we'll be attacked and we've been attacked before and so this region is cru- – our, our, our military control of it is important for our security and then you've got Palestinians saying we've been driven off our land and now, we, and now on the land that we ran to, we've been occupied and we have no control over our self-determination and there's no end in sight and this is illegal and immoral. So you've got these two narratives coming up. And again, I know I butchered it, but it maybe, maybe this is enough to get you to look it up and to read some articles and get some historical context. At the very least, it's enough to set the stage for us to talk about the work of Military Court Watch, which is the organization that Gerard and Saul were run that basically documents and puts pressure on the Israeli military to live up to its obligations under international law, which as you will find out is a very difficult job. So without any further ado, and, 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 and for those of you coming back because you skipped the summary, that's all right, without any further ado, I'm gonna share with you my conversation with Gerard Horton and Salwa Duobis. I always mispronounce her name, uh, but not the Sawa part. That I get right. And uh, these are two wonderful people. And uh, I love talking to them and I hope you enjoy it. I'll see you on the other side. 
Hey, I'm so glad to see you guys again. Good to see you, Bart. Yeah. Same here. You look yeah. great. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> well, I, 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 I feel, feel pretty good. Um, where are you guys right now? Jerusalem. Yep, both in Jerusalem. In, in, in a house, in an apartment, what part of town? In a house. I'm in a house. In East Jerusalem. Right. East Jerusalem. Yeah. Okay. So we're probably, uh, what would we be, about uh, five kilometers, four kilometers from, you know, all the holy sites and all of that. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And, and you're legal now. Is that, is that what I hear, Gerard? Yeah. That you, you're, you're officially allowed to be there? Yes. That's right. Yeah. What were you before? <laughs> I, I was still here. But, um, <clears throat> you know, it's a process. <laughs> like anyway, it's a process to be allowed to stay somewhere. I don't, like, I, I literally, I have notes, all these notes in front of me. I, I so don't know where to begin. But you guys were very important to me. Like, you were my on the ground introduction to the Israeli occupation. Hmm. I, 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 when I got involved, I got involved with the whole kind of Middle East sort of peace, nonprofit, whatever you want to call conflict reduction stuff that I got involved with through my, a college friend of mine, Jerry White. You took me to visit the, 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 the little small town that the Tamimis lived in? Yeah, yeah. I think it was the Tamimis. And Nabisale. It's, I, d I don't know, it's probably about um, you know, less than 20 kilometers north of here. Yeah. I, I remember it so well because, I mean, I'm sure you've been, like, had rubber bullets shot near you and been tear gassed and, you know, watched Palestinian young people throwing stones and then being run off by, by, Israeli military many, many times. I had never seen anything like that. I had never been tear gassed. I, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I had no idea how violent we, we, we were standing on a hillside overlooking. There's a, there's a, a well mm -hmm. or, a, or sort of a spring yeah. and, and the Israeli military control the spring. And so as we're standing there, these settlers came down and, you know, Israeli settlers were there and they were sort of using the spring and the soldiers were providing protection. And these Israeli, or, or the, the, the kids from the village, the Palestinian kids, they went down and they started yelling back and forth. And then they threw some rocks and the soldiers just decided to come up the hill and run them back into the town. And, 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 you know, they were advancing and the kids ran back into the town and started hiding in houses and we, we, we were just watching, but, but we had to run back and we ended up going into a house and then they just lobbed in all this tear gas and it tear gas came into the houses. Yeah. And yeah, I remember that. And of course, you know, before I came into that kind of work, I had been working in American inner city ghettos. And so I had seen a lot of police, you know, kind of over control. And I had seen a lot of rough stuff. I had never seen anything yeah. like that. And, and all that day I was asking questions, Gerard, and you probably, you, I mean, you might've gotten tired of it, but like you were explaining to me what business as usual is in the occupied territories. Mm. And, and it was heartbreaking to me. Mm. Um, 
here I am with this Aussie national <laughs> driving around and everybody like in all these towns, everybody knew you. Everybody was like, hey, Gerard, hey, what's happening, Gerard? Like, it was like you were one of the gang. <laughs> and I guess maybe, maybe a, a good way of, of me just sort of asking you is like, how did you become one of the gang in a Palestinian village with a bunch of Palestinian sort of activists? How, how did you, how did you get to be like, Hey, Gerard, how did that happen? Yeah. So I, um, I came just, for, just for a few months. Um, my background is as a lawyer. Um, I was, uh, practicing as, um, a commercial lawyer, some criminal work in, in Sydney, Australia. And I had some time off and I guess, um, I'd also done a, a degree in international law. And I think uh, if you study international law, obviously this place always comes up because it's like been going on forever. And I think what intrigued me about this place was, forget about the politics, just from a purely legal perspective, this is not a very complicated situation, just purely from a legal perspective. You know, the law that applies is pretty, pretty clear. And the violations, the big violations of, of, of certain aspects of that law are also pretty clear. And so as a lawyer, it, that kind of intrigued me because my, my, obviously, commercial law is somewhat different practicing, you know, in a courtroom. But it's, in some respects, it's not that different. You, um, you know, you show up in court having read all the papers and you have a fair idea of what's going to happen, give or take. And... What surprised me here was the law could be pointing in one direction and the results are completely different. And that intrigued me as to how, because <clears throat> it's completely foreign from, you know, domestic court situation where, like I said, more often than not, you have a fair idea what the result's going to be subject to your client going crazy. Um, and so that, that was intriguing, I think. So, so w when you're explaining this intrigue, what you mean is... In 1967, the Israeli military occupied a bunch of territory that isn't, isn't part of the original Israeli agreement. And what you're saying is like, under international law, if you occupy territory that isn't yours, um, sort of like the United States did it in Iraq, um, there are these rules, right? Like there's international laws that say this is how you have to act during a military occupation. Exactly. And you're like, those laws are on the books. Israel agrees that those laws are on the books. The United States knows those laws are on the books. And yet what's going on on the ground has nothing to do. It's completely illegal. Yeah. And everybody knows it. Yeah. And I think you, you touched on a good point there in that from a legal perspective, I could understand it. Um, I can understand it if a, your opponent say in a courtroom says, I don't accept that this is what the law is. And so then you have an argument about what the law is. I can completely understand that. That's a rational kind of position, I think, you know, and one person's going to be right and one person's going to be wrong. What I found so intriguing here, as you point out, is it's not Israel um, exactly saying, we don't agree that these rules apply. In many aspects, they say, yeah, we, we, we embrace these rules. For example, with the work we do, we, you know, as you, you probably say in the introduction, we work with Palestinian children prosecuted in Israeli military courts. 
those military courts were set up in June 1967. And the legal basis upon which Israel set those up, and they wrote this down themselves, is that law. They said, we embrace this law, and this law gives us the right to temporarily prosecute these adults, Palestinian adults and children, in military courts. That's why we're doing it. That I can completely understand. Um, but then to turn around and then say, but when it comes to these other kind of issues, we don't accept the same laws. It's kind of like you, have, you enter into a contract with someone and then there's a, a breach of that contract. And the person goes down, looks through the contract, and says, listen, I like clause one, three and six, but I don't really like two, five and seven. So I'm going to comply with one, three and six, and I'm not going to comply with the others. And we still have a contract. Now, uh, you don't need to be a lawyer to know that's problematic. So, so you sh you came over. Were, I mean, were you on a holiday? Were you visiting through some other organization that you were working with? Like, like, like you came over and you noticed this crazy situation legally. What, why were you there in the first place? Yeah, so I came and I basically to try and understand that you know um, some of those issues that we just discussed, and then I did. Okay, and then I did some voluntary work with an organization that happened to work on prisoners' rights. Um, and, it, you know, and that sort of evolved into where we are, we are today. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's our, our work, I suppose, works on those two levels. It works on, okay, what are the individual circumstances surrounding an individual arrest or prosecution? That's one side. The other side of it is what we were touched we touched upon a little bit, and what is the legal basis for prosecuting these people in military courts anyway? Um, and like we said, there was plenty of justification back in 1967. You're allowed to do that based on you know these laws we were talking about temporarily. Um, but you know, I don't want to get too technical, but the the law the fourth Geneva Convention that allows you to temporarily prosecute civilians in military courts also prohibits building settlements in occupied territory. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm sure all your listeners know that that's a big issue in this part of the world. All of the Israeli civilians who have been allowed to move out of Israel into the West Bank and live in you know, what international law says is illegal settlements. Well, the reason they're illegal is that same law that says, yeah, you can prosecute Palestinians temporarily in military court. So it's, it's like getting back to that contract example. You know, we accept this clause, but we don't accept that clause. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that when I was there, all the tension points that I saw were the places where Palestinians were living, where they had always lived, and the Israelis had confiscated a bunch of land and built, and they, to call them settlements, like they were like cities, they were like big towns, they were beautiful, gleaming resort-looking places with, and they're they're fully economically, you know, yeah. vital places that have been. Some of them have been there for thirty, forty years, you know. Yeah. Um, and so th those were the, those aren't the, those those are the tension points exactly, and you know, you it, it, it's not rocket science. Um, you know, the same laws that we were talking about applied when America occupied Iraq. Under those laws, um, America could temporarily occupy Iraq. And they set up, America set up um, military courts in Iraq to prosecute 
um, Iraqis who broke that military law. And you can do that on a temporary basis. <clears throat> but to follow that kind of analogy forward, imagine if the US in Iraq had decided, let's not only prosecute some Iraqis in these military courts, but why don't we bring over a bunch of Nebraskans, let's say, like here, let's say 400,000 or so Nebraskans, if there are 400,000 Nebraskans, I don't know, um, and allow them to build towns and villages in Iraq next door to Iraqis. And then ask yourself a simple question. Is that likely to cause friction? Of course, it's going to cause friction. And that's, you know, it's not an exact analogy. Give you an idea. No, and then, and then take it a step further and go like, and we'll ensure that the Iraqis, that, that the Nebraskans have really good electricity and really good water and, have, and, and are able to travel freely. And we'll say to the, all the people whose land they stole, you actually have to go through a bunch of military checkpoints and we'll turn off your electricity whenever we feel like it. And we'll turn off your water whenever you've bothered us. Oh, and by the way, if you protest um, in any way, we'll run soldiers in and break up the protests and spray stinky water into your homes. And then we will prosecute you in military courts. And the reason we will prosecute you in military courts is because international says we can. It's all legal. But we'll forget about right. the, the same law that says the Nebraskans shouldn't be in there, shouldn't be there in the first place. So, yeah. And so you can understand that not only is there that, that physical tension, but you know, that's a, that's a situation. And it's not unique to this situation. I think when you tell people, whether it's here in the US or anywhere, you tell people, listen, we've got a set of rules that we're all going to live by. And then you start picking and choosing who you're going to apply those rules to and who you're going to turn a blind eye to. That's going to cause a lot of um, anger, yeah. understandably. And you, you, know, you see that wherever that occurs, where rules are applied disproportionately, um, you, will get, you know, you'll get tension. So, so let me just sort of fat, at some point in this story, you come over, and I mean, I, I can totally relate to this because... I saw a lot of different work going on when I was in that part of the world on all the trips I took. I saw a lot of people doing a lot of interesting, good work. But, but, but when, I, when I went there with you, I thought, you know, I was ready to quit my job um, and go like, that's, I, I want to be, be a part of that work. That was, it was the most compelling thing I saw. Um, and so I can understand like your, your, you came, you saw, you were like shocked by what you saw. But at what point in this process did you meet Sawa? Hiking. So we met hiking relatively early on, probably really a couple of couple of years in. I'll let I'll let Sawa tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we met hiking. Actually, we bumped into each other under an olive tree. <laughs> how, how romantic. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, at, the, at that time I was working with a women's organization I was basically trying to highlight the impact of Israeli occupation on uh, women and uh, you know we quickly found out that the work that he was doing with children prosecuted in military detention somehow crossed with, what, with the work with, that I was doing so we started to coordinate and you know sing together and 
eventually we started to do um, work together. Like we would take delegations to these friction points, to the villages and towns next door to settlements where uh, land was taken and where, uh, you know, understandably the local Palestinians objected and protested. And naturally there was friction and tear gas and children arrested and mothers harassed. And uh, yeah, that's what, how, you know, we started to do work um, together. And later on, I quit my work with the women's organization and started to do work with Military Court Watch. Okay, so two, I have two questions. And First, we stopped hiking. I, I, I like the hiking story. <laughs> but um, Gerard's this Australian barrister who came over to, to, to check out the legal situation. How, how did you get to that olive tree? Like, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? So, yeah, Gerard talked about how he was, um, you know, became interested in this uh, region through, you know, reading about the conflict, you know, watching things on television, you know, being a lawyer, understanding the law and figuring out what's right, what's right and what's wrong. I came from the extreme other end of the story. I knew nothing about the law. I'm not a lawyer. I never read about it. I never even imagined there would be a law, you know, regulating occupation. But I lived under occupation. So I had to figure out what's right and what's wrong and what's acceptable and not acceptable while growing up under occupation. And um, I actually was born in Nazareth, and then my parents moved to Haifa, which is a big city inside Israel where both Palestinians and Israelis live in more or less harmony and peace together. But at a very young age, I knew there was something kind of wrong with me. You know, I didn't really fit. I noticed that every time I spoke Arabic in a loud voice to my parents in a shop or on the street, people would start to look at me. And, you know, the language that the majority of the people spoke was Hebrew. It wasn't Arabic. So there was like these subtle um, messages and signals. I was different. I was not part of the majority. I was not totally welcome, but nothing serious. You know, I was I never felt my life was in danger or that I was threatened by our Jewish neighbors or that I was unsafe walking on the street. But then my parents moved to live in, um, in Nablus in the 70s, which was another big city, but under occupation. It was the early years of occupation. And having moved from Haifa, where Israelis, you know, Israeli Jewish people and Palestinian citizens of Israel lived together in, har in harmony, I moved to um, living in Nablus under occupation. And my first encounter with soldiers, whom I also saw in, in Haifa, but I never you know, was afraid or scared of them, was when um, my classmates' uh, grandparents' land was confiscated where, uh, to build a settlement. So in solidarity with our you know, classmate and her grandparents, we decided to organize um, a protest, a small protest inside the school compound. You know, nothing violent. We were not on the street. But we were chanting, you know, slogans and singing songs against the occupation in solidarity with my friend. And I was in the front lines, of course, because, you know, you know I'm, I think I'm allowed to protest. And all of a sudden, the soldiers stormed into the uh, courtyard and everyone started to run away. And I was 
grabbed by a soldier who, you know, grabbed my ponytail, pushed me to the ground, punched me very hard in the stomach, and I thought I was going to die on that day. And it wasn't the physical, um, you know, pain that I felt at the time that upset me, but rather my understanding of the world around me that was turned upside down, that was more upsetting. I said, my goodness, this is not what I grew up, you know, understanding. This is not what I'm familiar with. The rules of the game are totally different. And it, I started to think, you know, am I allowed to, um, you know, protest inside my school compound? Am I allowed to go to the streets and do that? Is a soldier allowed to grab me and punch me in the stomach so hard? Is that acceptable? And that is when I started to read and um, try to understand the, the, the legal aspects of the occupation. What, what is allowed? What is, what is permitted? You know, what, what are the regulations? And that uh, kind of, um, you know, other incidents that happened personally to me, like, you know, in our house in Nablus was at a strategic crossroads. And the soldiers would often raid our house in the middle of the night, uh, not to arrest any of us, not to question any of us because we were not involved in politics, but they wanted to take the roof, uh, the rooftop, uh, so that they monitor the area, to keep an eye on the area. But until today, every time I talk about exp these experiences of night raids, you know, I, I feel the fear I felt as a, I think I was 13 or 14 years old at the time. It is so frightening to be woken up in the middle of the night to the sound of soldiers' boots on the stairs of your house. I knew none of us were going to be um, subjected to anything. They just wanted to go to the roof. And as a young person, I thought, well, you know, night raids and, uh, you know, incursions in, you know, into people's homes is a, an acceptable thing under occupation. And it was until I met Gerard and started to do work with him that I realized, you know, night raids are not justified, you know, routine, you know, as a routine procedure, you know, to go into people's homes and wake children and women up and terrify everyone is totally unacceptable. And this is what I mainly do, you know, with Military Court Watch. I basically tell the story of these night raids, tell the story of the women who experiences the, uh, experience it, the mothers who find it very hard to sleep at night simply because it is not a question of if their house will be raided, but it's a question of when. They know for sure once your house is in a village next door to a settlement, this is going to happen to you. And um, the fear, you know, the humiliation that a father feels when soldiers storm into the house and push him aside and probably verbally abuse him uh, lock the mother and the children in a room and start to interrogate a teenage boy inside his bedroom uh, without a lawyer present, without informing him of his uh, rights. So that father is so deeply hurt. You know, it's, it's such a devastating feeling to feel that you have failed as a parent, you know, whether you're a father or, or a mother. You feel that you failed to protect your children. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I, I'm... I'm... I remember, I, I, I think that people don't understand is that so much of what goes on is psychological warfare because it's not incidental, you know, what, what, it's not incidental that these raids undermine a kid's sense of security or make 
parents feel powerless or destroy a family. You know, because as a 13-year-old, you want to believe that if somebody punches you in the stomach, your dad will take care of it or your mom will go down and she'll call the police and something can happen. And your mom and dad look at you and go like, there's nothing we can do. We can't protect you. Um, it's not incidental. It's not, that's, that's the point of a lot of these raids. Mm-hmm. There's a, my sense when I was there and, and, and even talking to former soldiers is they were like, oh yeah, we would raid houses. There was not, we didn't need to get anything in there and there was no strategic value to it. We just knew that every few, every few days our commander would say, hey, we need to go and humiliate some Palestinians in order to keep them from protesting too much and in order to keep them subservient and, and, and knowing that they have no power. Because if they ever felt like they had any power, there's a lot more of them than there are of us. So we we have to keep them under psychological lockdown. Mm-hmm. And 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 I guess the thing, Sawa, I'm trying to understand is because because I've I've been to Haifa and I've been to Nablus. Why would your parents have moved you to Nablus when you like? What were they thinking? <laughs> Yeah, so it wasn't really a choice. My father was a minister in the uh, in the church, and the church moved him from one place to another. So I was, you know, my parents got married in Nazareth, and that is where I was born. And then they moved to Haifa, and then from Haifa to Nablus, and from Nablus to Ramallah, and we ended up finally in Jerusalem. And I'm not going anywhere, I tell you. <laughs> we moved, we moved <laughs> what, what kind of church was your father a pastor? Well, it's here we call it the Anglican Church, but the Anglican Church, but it's the equivalent of the Episcopalian Church in America. Okay, I think it's funny because you know most of the people that listen to this podcast have some religious background. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them identify with with me because I grew up and I was such a serious Christian, so involved with it, and when I left it. It was like leaving my whole identity behind. I left my job. I left all, you know, but it was also my sense of who I was in the world, how the world worked. Like, you know, I I, I still wanted to be a good person, but I didn't know why. Like I had to come up with a whole new explanation of why to be a good person um, or why to want to be a good person. Uh, How did your growing up in the, 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 a minister's, daughter in that kind of a church, how did that affect what your understanding of the world you saw around you as an oppressed minority? Yeah, well, it was, I was, you know, living a situation where I was a minority within the minority. So not only was I Christian among majority Muslims, both in Haifa and in uh, Nablus, I mean, I was, my sister and I were the only two Christian uh, students in the entire school of, I, I think it was 700 students. And uh, I had some girls come and look into my sandwich to see whether, whether I ate something different. <laughs> it was an experience. It, it, in a way, it made me a tough person because I had to prove myself. I had to show that I am no less than any of you. But within that um, minority that I lived, I was also within the you know, the minority Palestinians among the majority uh, Jewish people inside uh, inside Israel. And, uh, yeah, it's made me, you know, I don't know, think about all these issues. Um, um, you know, how, how, 
how can I fight for my rights and for the rights of the group I belong to? What is acceptable? What can I do? What is the limit? How far can I go? And I tell you, these limits were challenged in when, when one of my friends was uh, shot dead in Nablus. Uh, that pushed me to the edge, you know, that nearly radicalized me. And I completely, um, I, I don't say I, I mean, I'm not going to, um, I don't know how to, to put it, but it's very, it's easier than we can all imagine how a normal person can be actually pushed into uh, be- becoming a radical person when something shocking happens to him or her, like the death of a friend or the death of a parent or, you know, the detention of a parent. Um, but then one finds a way to channel this anger or this frustration or this pain, you know, that one feels because of this loss into something hopefully, you know, more productive and, and uh, um, you know, where, where, where one can have an influence on how things uh, evolve. How old was your friend? Uh, she was 17. She was my next door neighbor. And she and was shot by a soldier? Yes, she was a kind of a, a leadership material. She would make, you know, would have arguments with the soldiers going, you know, walking to school and back from school. Uh, you know, if there were demonstrations, she would be the first to be marching down the streets or inside the school. And she became kind of well-known among, among the uh, soldiers who were patrolling the town during that month, or I don't know how long they were there. And one day she had a, you know, you know a difficult argument with one of the soldiers, it seems, and he followed her into the stairwell of a building. And he shot her dead at point blank almost, you know, two shots in the neck and one in, a, in the chest. And that was Lena. She was gone. For months and months and months, I couldn't show my face to her mother because I felt guilty being alive when her daughter was dead. For no crime of her own, nothing. And, uh, you know, I remember the negative thoughts that came to my mind. I I wanted to, you know, sacrifice myself for Lena. You know, I wanted to, you know, experience the pain that she and her family lived. And, you know, as a young person, you don't really <laughs> think the details of, you know, these deeper thoughts and deeper fears uh, until my parents noticed something was wrong with me. And they sat me down and talked to me and they said, don't you think about doing anything, uh, you know, unacceptable? And uh, <laughs> that is my, uh, that was my, how I, you know, entered this world. And I want, I decided I wanted to, you know, try to make a, a difference, you know, no matter how small, in a small way, but uh, to consciously channel my pain and my frustration and my fears into at least telling the story of people who live in fear and frustration. So, yeah. So in a real sense, you know, in your, in your childhood, you, you were the kind of child that now military court watch, um, keeps track of and, and, and tries to, 
to understand what's happening to children because I mean I think that that's the thing that is the most like that that I came to understand through Gerard uh, is is he explained to me when I was there that by focusing on what happens to children that is the most obvious most internationally understandable I mean everybody understands if if you're hurting children that's that's at the highest level like, like there's, there's there can be no argument that justifies torturing a child there can be no argument that that justifies ripping a child out of its mother's arms and 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 blindfolding it and throwing it in the back of a van and driving it away and not telling the mother where it is we we all understand that and so i th- i think i'm right in saying that you guys are focusing on the children partly because you care about children but partly because it is the it is the clearest way for you to highlight the larger problem am i right in am i right in that yeah yeah pretty much i mean and i think one piece of evidence that really stands out and perhaps emphasizes that is that you know one thing we do as an organization is we collect a lot of testimonies from children each year. So there's, I think it's approaching 900 testimonies on our website now. But there's one, there are a number of features of this evidence, body of evidence, where there are commonalities. But one particular feature really stands out, and that is where are all these children arrested? Physically, the geographical location. And our evidence, you know, there's a big body of evidence shows that something like 98% of these children who get arrested by the military and are prosecuted in the military courts live within about a mile of an illegal Israeli settlement in the West Bank. Um, and that's not coincidental. And I think to understand that dynamic, just um, put yourself in the shoes of an Israeli military commander for a moment. And you ask yourself, well, what mission has he been given by the politicians in Israel? And the mission that he's been given, basically, is to guarantee the protection of those in the West Bank, not including Jerusalem, 450,000 Israeli civilians living in illegal settlements in the West Bank among about 3 million Palestinians. Now, that's a pretty... That's a pretty scary mission for any soldier to be given. How do you guarantee the protection of mothers and children and workers, you know, going along roads in the West Bank when you're way in the minority? How do you protect all of those people? You know, and for anyone who's been to the West Bank, it's a it's pretty rugged terrain. A lot of these roads are quite remote. And so the the solution that that soldier military commander has come up with, and it's probably the only, in fairness to that person, it's probably the only tactic that really works, is you look at where, in, in, you look at the map and you look at where Palestinians live close to these settlements, and you essentially terrif- terror, terrorize and terrify them into submission. As you know, you, you spoke about a little bit before that you, you, don't, you may not have any intelligence on this particular family, but you raid their house and you keep raiding their house and their neighbors' houses because they live within a mile of the settlement. And pretty quickly, and this 
becomes very clear when you spend any time here. Pretty quickly, and there'll be exceptions, but generally you will intimidate that community into submission. And that's the way you do it. And like I said, in fairness to these soldiers, once the politicians in Israel decided that was going to be the policy of the state to illegally move all of these Israeli civilians into occupied territory, they really gave the soldiers no other option than to develop tactics like this. And it's, it's very effective to give, I mean, this is, yeah. not, it, this is not the only way to measure these things, but to give you an example, in 2012, out of over 400,000 Israeli civilians living in occupied territory in the West Bank among 3 million Palestinians, in 2012, not a single one of those settlers was killed. Now, that's an extraordinary military achievement. 2012 was an exceptional year. If you, if you look at the 10-year average, it's about, I think it's around five Israeli settlers killed each year. But that works out at something like 0.003% or something like that. More people get killed in road traffic accidents than you know, an Israeli uh, getting killed in the West Bank through the conflict. Now, just think of the example we gave, the analogy we gave before of Iraq. Imagine if in 2004, you had moved 400,000 Nebraskans to Iraq and told them to build towns and villages. And imagine if only five were killed in a year. I mean, that's, that's extraordinary. But the way it's done- Triumph, yeah, it'd be a triumph. Yeah, the way it's done is, is how, you know, Sawa described it. And, and you, you, know, you can see it in all the testimonies we collect. And you can see it from testimonies from, as you were mentioning, from former Israeli soldiers. And that is the commander has to tell his soldiers to go into these villages close to the settlements, Palestinian villages, and basically terrify people. And like I said, you know, it, it, by and large, with some exceptions, it works. Yeah. And I mean, it's not just a rough up. They, you know, I, I think about like when I was in high school, I was probably like your friend, Sal. Like I was one of the leaders at my high school. Like everybody knew me and like, you know, I, I, would, I, I talked a lot. And so, you know, the Israeli soldiers figure out which kid is the sharp kid. Is the, is the leader. And they go into his house in the middle of the night. They, they put his parents at gunpoint. They pull this kid out. They, they blindfold him. They put plastic handcuffs on his hand. They throw him in the back of a van. They take him to someplace. He doesn't even know where he is. And they might beat him. They might yell at him. And they say to him, tell us who the ki other kids are at your school that have been talking negatively about Israel. Tell, tell us who the other kids that are the protest leaders. That's right. And if you don't, you're never going home. And he's 13, he's 15, he doesn't know. And then if, if he tells them a name, then he is just feels horrible about himself for the rest of his life. He sold out his friends. And if he doesn't tell them a name, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And his mother's back home and she's, she doesn't know where he is. His father doesn't know where he is. And then maybe 48 hours later, maybe 72 hours later, they drop him off. They, they don't drop him off at home. They just throw him out of the car somewhere. And he has to figure out how to get home. You just, if that had happened to me when I was 16, I would have given up whatever cause I was fighting mm -hmm. for and just said, I'm going to be quiet from now on. Or I would have been like, get me a gun, show me a soldier. Like I would have just, I don't know how you can go, you know, you, you either crush a person or you radicalize them. And so it's, it's, it's just, you know, I, I don't think... When I think about that kind of experience, what I find, what I found myself 
sort of wondering, because I, I don't know if I told you this, Gerard, but like after you dropped me off, you took me back through the, ch- you took me back to the checkpoint after that day, it was evening. And I was going back to, I was going back to Tel Aviv. So you took me back in and said, Hey, go through this checkpoint. And then there's a, this is how you get to the train station. And then I took a train back to Tel Aviv. On that train, I was sitting next to a young man and he said, where have you been? Where, you know, where are you going? I said, yeah, we chatted. And I mentioned to him the, the, the town that we had been in. And he looked at me and he said, oh, he said, that's a bad place. A lot of trouble there. And he said, how do you know? He said, he said, when I was a soldier last year, he said, like, that's where I was. And he started to, like, and, you know, it was my own little breaking the silence moment. You know, the breaking the silence is this organization that gets Israeli soldiers to tell the story of what they went through. But as he talked about it from the, his perspective, he was just a terrified 18 year old in a, in a, surrounded by people who hate his guts. And he was, it, it was, he was traumatized by the experience as well. He knew yeah. he had done all these wrong things. And if you, you know, in any army in the world, if you're 18 years old and your commander tells you to do something and all of your comrades are doing stuff, following their orders, you know, it would take a pretty unique soul to stand up against your commander and all the other soldiers and say, hey, this is wrong. You know, how many of us would have the courage to do that? Um, And that's, you know, and that's not unique to this situation. We see it in any military in the world that... You put young people, not just young people, you put anyone into a group of other people. And most of us will conform to the, our peers around us, whether those peers are doing you know, worthwhile things or, or not. You know, we, we basically go along with the crowd. Yeah. You know, there are exceptions. Sometimes we, we rise, um, you know, we speak out, but more often than not, you know, we just follow the crowd. All of us, you know, that's human nature. Occasionally with the work we do, I mean, there's a lot of things that are shocking, but you get kind of numb to a lot of things. But there, there are a few standout things that really, um, you didn't really anticipate. And one of those is um, part of the work we do is each year, not, not in the last year with COVID, but prior to COVID and when it passes, we speak to a lot of delegations each year, like over a hundred delegations from Europe, from America, et cetera. And we give them a, like a, I don't know, 40, 50 minute presentation where we basically just, we go through in chronological order, what it's like for a child and a family to get arrested, starting from the point where you hear banging at your front door at two o'clock in the morning. And we go through, you know, the process, how they're treated there. Uh, the physical aspects of it and the legal aspects, et cetera. And that's about a 40-minute thing. And the, and the impact, psychological impact this has on these young people. But here's the thing that I wanted to mention, and that is, you know, we, we tell this story to based on the evidence we collect to all these groups. And by and large, whether they're, you know, from Europe, whether they're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, you know, people are shocked, understandably. But there's one group that, really impacted me because of the way it impacted them. And that was African-Americans. When we speak to African-Americans, and I can't quite describe it, the exact, because it's a feeling, but usually about 10 minutes into the story, 
a kind of black cloud of depression descends upon the room. You know, people generally are, are upset when they hear this story, but this is something altogether different. And afterwards, these African-Americans will come up and say, it's not exactly the same, obviously, but you know, it's a variation on oppression. And people come up to us and say, you know, I know what it's like to be singled out day in, day out, um, to be assumed to be guilty, you know, regardless of what you're doing. Um, and the psychological impact that has on a, on a community and how, and again, there are plenty of exceptions, but how this is a very, these are very effective techniques and they're, they're variations. They can be more brutal or more psychological. But these are techniques used to control groups. Um, it's very graphic where we yeah, are, yeah. but it's it's no less you know it's no less in other parts of the world, but maybe more subtle. But the objective yeah. is the same, you know, to keep no. a group of people down. I mean, I was thinking about it because you know you mentioned that you know ninety some percent of the arrests are people that live adjacent to a settlement. That's where the the tension point is. You know, what you didn't mention was that most of those arrests, the offense is throwing a rock, throwing a stone, um, that, that, that it's yeah, kids I mean, throwing stones. Yeah. I mean, one, there's throwing stones and there's throwing stones. Um, you know, you can't just dismiss throwing stones as so here is the spectrum that we're faced with. On one end of the spectrum is if you pick up a rock and chuck it at a car traveling on a highway. You know, you can cause catastrophic uh, damage doing that. Sure, that's sure. one. That's one end of the spectrum. We don't get many of those cases, but there are those cases. The other end of the spectrum is kids chucking rocks at um, the separation, the 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 wall that has been built in the West Bank, separating. You know, it's not exactly on the border, but separating Israel from the occupied territories. Some kids will just chuck rocks at that. And they will get arrested and prosecuted and spend three months in prison for throwing rocks at the wall. And, you know, most people, when you tell them that story, they, they raise their eyebrows and you're like, why would you arrest and prosecute a child for chucking a rock at a wall? You know, a military, basically a military kind of type. You know, it looks like the Berlin Wall. Actually, it's bigger. You know, you're not going to cause any damage to it. What's that all about? And once you've been here long enough, you realize there is actually method in that madness. And that is that from the Israeli military's perspective, they're, they're not concerned that this kid is going to damage the wall with a rock. Of course not. But what they're concerned about is that particular child who's throwing rocks at the wall has the spark of resistance in them. Now, today it's chucking stones at a wall, which is insignificant, immaterial. But what happens if that person, like Salwa's friend mm -hmm. Lena, becomes a political force? in 15 or 20 years time, then that might be a problem. So what you do is you identify those children with that yeah. spark inside them and you crush it, you extinguish it. Kill the spark it. early. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what happened to Lena. Wow. That was friend. All right. So it, it, this may seem a shift of gears, but I, I don't think it is. I hope not. When we, you're talking about like the human, the human element of this, and how people respond as human beings. And I guess what I'm wondering is the two of you at some point in your partnership, like working partnership, it became more than a working partnership. Yeah. So we're, Sarah and I are married. 
And, and I guess as a married couple doing this work together, I guess what I'm wondering is how the human spirit, you mentioned that, you know, like, and I, 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 just because I don't believe in God doesn't mean I don't believe that there's a spiritual element to us as people. It's not supernatural to me, but there's a side of us that is about these ineffable feelings that run between us, this, these senses that we have, uh, this consciousness, this, this, this love that sort of is our evolutionary adaptation that causes us to cleave together and, and form tribes and take care of each other. And I guess what I'm wondering is like, how has this work and what you've seen and the people that you've watched, how has this affected your spirits? Like, how do you feel like this has shaped you in terms of the way in which you feel about life? And, and maybe that's a crazy question, but, or maybe, maybe it's not a, a, a specific enough question, but I feel like each of you growing up had developed a sort of, you, your spark wasn't crushed growing up. Each of you came to this work, came to each other even with, as a soul, as, 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 a, as a person who had, who had a sense of caring and what was right and what was wrong and what mattered. How have, how have, how have you been shaped over the last, what, 10 years? <laughs> um, so do you want me to go first? No, I mean, it's, it's a good question. You know what, Sawa, don't, 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 don't let Gerard answer okay, it so first. It's one of the toughest questions you know, I'm ever asked, you know, how does this affect you? Well put, Bart. But I've been uh, <laughs> thinking about this over the years. I realize, I mean, we all realize that in the uh, public do domain we live in, you know, all the politicians and the media around us and everyone around us, they kind of try to shape in our own minds what is possible and what is not possible. They constantly send this strong message that, you know, you should give up. You are naive. You are trying to do the impossible. This will never change. You know, you will never have any effect. You will, have never, you will never have any influence. So the way this work has shaped me is, A, helped me identify this noise around us, constantly around us, you know, all the time, telling us what's possible, what is not trying to crush the natural need and desire for all human beings, for all people to be good people, to help others, to try to change a bad situation into a better. So first of all, you, you know, I realize that this is the tune that everyone is singing, trying to tell me to give up and that I will never ever succeed in a meaningful way. And what I try to do is remind myself of the other more subtle message that's also around me. You know, that people often uh, make extra effort and special effort uh, when they don't have a guarantee that they will succeed. There's no guarantee. They just put this enormous effort into something. And one example I can think of is how parents care for their children, you know, with, you know, or maybe more accurately, like how we all try to help a sick person. You know, we care of the, we, the weak and the vulnerable without a guarantee that this person will be healthy again, or that this person will recover. But this is the, you know, the, the purest 
kind of effort that any human being puts in is when there is no guarantee that the, that the effort will be successful. And this is the only thing that will, you know, keep and nurture the hope in all of us. You know, this, this belief that, you know, no matter how small my effort is and no matter how enormous the counter message or situation is, I am not going to spare my efforts into trying to make this situation a better one, not only for me personally, but for people um, around me. It's a tough thing. It's one of the toughest things to, you know, to understand what the problem is and to go against the tide day in and day out relentlessly and to never give up. And I hope that, you know, on the day that I will stop feeling the way I feel I should, that I will stop doing this work, you know, without this small spark of hope, there's no point in doing this work. And I think we all have it in us, not, you know, only people who work on the ground, but people to hear, who hear these stories. They feel they want to do something and they feel overwhelmed by the situation. They feel the politicians and the politics is bigger than all of us. But I want to give, you know, send an, a small message, you know, that we should never ever give up trying to do our best to improve a situation for others, no matter how small. And no matter how, how many times and how loud the voices are who tell us, you know, you will not succeed, give up, give up. It, 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 it touches me that you say like that people never, that there's a certain quality of love, a quality of effort that people put in when they don't know the outcome. Um, exactly. It, it, we should not say because that from, all of us. When I was growing up as in the, in the church, I heard many sermons that said that the reason we should keep trying was because we know the outcome. You know, I can always remember mm -hmm. my father saying, we know how this ends when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the idea was that our hope was built on the surety that we didn't know what was going to happen in the meantime, but we knew how it would end. Interesting. But when, when I lost my faith and, and, and so many of the people that, that, that reach out to me, when they lose their faith, they have this period of crisis where they go, but, but now I don't know. Like, like what if the, you know, they go, I, in fact, I think maybe when I die, it's all over and that's it. And, and, and maybe mm -hmm. I don't know if we win and I don't know if good triumphs over evil in the end. Like it's all, nobody knows. It, it's all uncertain. And, and, you know, and, and so for me, a big part of leaving the faith was becoming comfortable with saying, you know, because people say to me, like, I don't, you know, how do you even know it? How do you even know that your good works will come to any good? How do you know what, you know? And I was like, I, I don't. And, 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 and accepting the idea of, I don't know. And then I started hanging mm. out with scientists when I was working at USC on a college campus, sort of hanging out with some of the world's eminent astrophysicists and science. And, and they said, oh yeah, the key to all scientific inquiry is the humility to accept, like every, every science, every scientific discovery begins with the admission, I don't know. I, I don't mm. know how that works. Like, like that, that's, that if you knew, you wouldn't look. Mm. 
And, and so, you know, all of this science is built on the humility of saying, I don't know. And, and recently I was reading a woman who had been through the natural disaster of, 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 the, of the Katrina, the, the big storm that, that devastated the United States, uh, the, New Orleans, and she had been in New Orleans at the time. And her definition of hope was the willingness to say, I don't know what's going to happen. Like her hope was not mm-hmm. optimism. Her hope wasn't like, it's all going to work out. I, be hopeful. Everything's going to be okay. All her work, she said, all her hope amounted to was the ability to look at a situation and say, I don't know what's going to happen. And, but maybe something I might do might make a difference. So that hope is mm-hmm. not, not doing what you can do because mm-hmm. you're sure it'll work. But doing what you do because you're humble enough to say, like, I don't know, it might, it might, it might, it might help a little. I might help this kid. I might help that person. I mm-hmm. might, you know, a hundred years from now, something might change, and it might be, it might happen a day sooner because of the work I'm doing right now. And so, I, 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 I love that. I don't know. Yeah, I think the 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 opposite of that makes the point too that. The only thing I can be sure of is if I do nothing, nothing yeah. will change. That I can be sure of. Yeah, that is the certainty. But the, the weird thing too is, is that when I'm over there, the people that make me the most hopeful and comfortable are the people that don't know what's going to happen and aren't sure. The people that scare me the most in that region on both sides, on every side, are the people that are sure that they go like, it will never work this way. The two-state solution is dead. The two-state solution is the only thing that could possibly work. Like, um, you know, Palestinians will never do this. Israelis will always do that. Like anyone that's sure, I feel like that's that's the crushing of hope. Um, that that's certainty, right. certainty- crushes, mm-hmm. crushes, crushes it. And so, so I, I really appreciate, uh, you know, because I think Sawa, when you grow up the way you did and when you see what you've seen, it would be very easy to come to a place of certainty and to go like, mm. this will never work or these people are all bad or there's, you know, mm-hmm. it would be very easy to get certain. Um, and that's when, when, when your parents pulled you aside, I, I don't know if, I, I would think you like they did you a great service by saying, "Listen, you know, don't you go that way? Don't don't you become? Don't you kill yourself because you're sure of anything? Like, you know, I think they they kind of kept. It sounds like they 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 kept you in a place where you had to still find out what you were going to be and who you were going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it had a huge in, impact on me. That uh, serious talk. <laughs> Gerard, do you feel like you've changed a lot since you came there? Um, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Um, <laughs> Salwa, do you think Gerard's changed a lot since he's come there? Or is he the same guy you bumped into under the olive tree? I think he has changed. And... Um, you know, a person changes when they see reality as it is. You know, we all come with perceptions. 
you know, about this and that, this is right and that's wrong. This person is nice and kind, that person is not. And the only, you know, experience and feet on the ground um, teach us the truth. You know, we figure out what the truth is ourselves. We don't take it from others, you know. Uh, as I said, you know, the messaging around us is very strong, either pro this or anti that, or this, like you said, this will work, this will not work. But the most important, um, um, what is, it? I mean, tool for change is to figure things out yourself. And I think Gerard came with certain information. Some of it was correct and some of it was not. But with his feet on the ground, with dealing with real people on the ground, I think he, he, his perception changed. <laughs> I don't know if you agree. You, you, you know us. You know each, each side better through your own findings, not through the media or not through politicians or, you know, this and that. But um, you sift through what you're told more clearly because you, you, you know, through dirty hands, through feet on the ground, you do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. No, this is my honest answer. I don't know. Maybe wrong. Am I too philosophical? Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> one, one thing, I mean, one thing I've noticed, um, I mean, I think a lot of people will have, learned and noticed a lot of things in the last year with, you know, uh, the pandemic. And one thing that's really struck me is I mentioned before that in normal years, we would meet over a hundred delegations from all over the world. And so we're talking, you know, literally thousands of people. And what, um, what I've learned this year is just how much, um, strength and hope we we got from those people, even though many of them just came to listen, we would actually draw a lot of strength from them. The fact that they bothered to come to see for themselves, whatever their views might be, you know, for this or for that, it didn't really matter. And I think, um, you know, I think that strengthens one's belief in the importance of solidarity and unity, not, not in the sense of we all have to think the same way, but just in the sort of human condition and the human spirit that we, you know, I think we all draw a lot of strength off each other. And when we're kept in isolation, like, you know, we have to some extent in the last, everyone has in the last year, we, we, you know, sometimes you, you only know what you've lost when you've lost it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that's struck me very much in the last year. You know, Gerard, I don't know if you, I, I don't think I told you this, but, you know, after I left working with Telos, um, because I wasn't very good at that work, I wasn't very, it, it was a lot of computer work and organizing people from long distances and, and I wasn't very good at it. And ultimately they figured that out. Um, I, I, I ended, I didn't know what I would do. You know, here I am an old minister who doesn't believe in God. And I, I ended up, um, I ended up meeting somebody who was a humanist chaplain on at Harvard. Um, he was working with college students, 
and uh, and 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 try, in a sense, trying to do what a minister would do, except with secular students, in the sense of saying, "Hey, what do you believe? Oh, you believe this life is all you have. Okay, well, how do you make the most of it?" And challenging them, and trying to create opportunities, and equipping them to become good lovers of people, and to become good. Um, good advocates for the right things and, and to become grateful and to appreciate the, the, the wonder that is just consciousness and life. And I, it really inspired me. And I ended up wangling my way into being the first humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California out in Los Angeles, um, which is a strange city. <laughs> and uh, Marty and I didn't do great in Los Angeles in terms of living there, but, but the work at USC was wonderful. And, um, but I couldn't make it pay. I, I, I've never been able to figure out how to make being a secular minister, a secular pastor pay. And so now I'm, I'm studying to be a counselor. I'm, I'm, I'm in a master's program to be just a, a regular therapist because a big part of what I always did was just sit across from people and talk to them about what was going on in their life. And in my, 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 my practical work, the, the, you have to do a practicum, an internship somewhere. And I'm working with street people. I'm working with people at the lowest level of society, you know, people that are very, very poor and they're in community mental health care. So they're, they're, they're people that have had very hard lives, have experienced lots of abuse, lots of neglect. And, um, and when I meet with them, it's exactly what you said, is that it isn't, I don't have wisdom for them. I don't have answers for their problems, but I'm genuinely curious about their lives. And I ask them questions and I listen really hard and I watch the way it inspires them and it energizes them and it lifts them up just to have somebody be interested mm. because so much of their lives, nobody's been interested. They're a number or a problem. And I was thinking about that when I was thinking about the interviews that you do with the mothers and the children and the fathers and thinking about the way your interest, the way you showing up and asking questions and putting up a video camera and saying, tell me the story, that that lets a person know like you matter. I'm curious about you. I want to know more. And the way that that lifts somebody up. And then I was thinking about the way the delegations come to you. And they say, tell us about your work. And even if they don't agree or if everything, or they don't understand everything, just the fact that they want to know. Mm. Um, I think there's something really profoundly important about recognizing, like, I think of you, you guys are heroes of mine. I've told your story to many, many people, but I haven't really thought very carefully about where you get your strength from. And it never really occurred to me that I always think of you as like, oh, I got to go talk to another one of those damn delegations. Oh, I got to take Bart Campolo to visit something and I'm going to, you know, and explain to the 90 millionth person what this means and how this works. And I, I always thought of it as you, I, I always thought that I felt guilty asking the questions and I felt guilty being with you guys because I thought you're, you're doing this heroic work and I'm an ignorant person asking questions and I may not be able to do anything helpful. And it, it's, 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 it, but it makes all the sense in the world to me that you miss the delegations. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, as you 
as you say, that's where we get our strength from in, in many respects. Yeah. And, and I, I guess maybe all I can say to you right now is because I'm just thinking out loud, is like, I don't know if your work will ultimately, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the Trump administration, I mean, any good work that any of us did for the last five years, I felt like they, they got rid of in 15 seconds. I mean, they just did so much damage. Um, but, but what I do know is this, is that if you ever stopped working, there would be a whole bunch of people that would stop being asked questions and stop having curiosity and interest focused on them. And I, I just think even if you can't change the situation, just shining your light in there, and being interested in people and letting them know that their suffering is not unremarked, is not unseen, is not unnoticed. I think that would be a huge loss. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, I was thinking about the quantum. Yeah, I was thinking about quantum physics. Um, I was reading this book, and and what it said was that one of the things they figured out is that if you observe a particle, it changes its location. Like that the act of observing it changes it, changes it. And they're like, I don't know how that works, but I, I feel like in your work, I feel like that the act of observing somebody suffering changes them. We once took an Australian bishop to the military court, you know, to, you know, observe hearings and to speak to parents. And he met this very young woman, a mother who was waiting for the hearing of her son. And he was so moved by her story. She described the terrifying night raid, how much she, how worried she is about her son, his school, and so on. And the bishop listened and listened and listened. And, you know, and in the end, he told me to translate to the mother and to say that he's going to go back to Sydney and light a candle for her. And she was in tears. He didn't say anything, you know other than I'm going to light a candle for your son. And that had a huge, profound impact on that mother who felt she was all alone in this world, you know. Her pain is only hers, her story is only hers. But then this person from the other end of the world comes and says, the only thing he says is, I'm going to light a candle for your son. She was in tears. Yeah. So... The delegations that come from America, when, when they're they're when they're finished, when when they always, I'm sure they always ask you the same thing. At the end, you know, what can we do? What should we do? Do you have anything? What do you tell them? What do you tell them now? I mean, we, you know, there are a number of things. Um, we mentioned, but I think what I've noticed in some ways being here for over 10 years, in some ways, I think I've learned more about Western democracies than I have about Israel and Palestine. One, how fragile they are. Two, how um, most people aren't that engaged in them, which means that you're leaving, you're leaving the field for how policy is developed to a very small number of people um, on, on whatever issue it might be. 
And that potentially can be very dangerous because it's it's you're leaving policy to you know those that make a life out of it. Um and the rest of us, it's quite easy for us to think, you know, they probably know what they're doing and they probably have the best interests in mind, possibly. And that can be obviously very wrong. And I think what it's taught me is whether you're interested in this part of the world or not, if you're a citizen of anywhere, it's so important. And it, it, sometimes it's really difficult to do because you look at the state of politics in most places and it's pretty depressing. Why would you want to sort of get involved in it? But we, each and every one of us really does have a duty um, to even in very small ways, but we have to be engaged and involved in our democracies and our communities. Because if we're not, you know, and I think the last uh, the last year has shown this, perhaps, you know, in the US, among other places, um, you know, if you're not engaged, um, you may wake up tomorrow and it's a very different world and one that you don't like. You know, there's no guarantee that tomorrow will be like yesterday. Um, for better and for worse. But I think it's so important that, um, you know, people are engaged because I think uh, the cost of not being engaged and the, the danger, the danger with this is that it doesn't happen overnight. You cannot be engaged and the world doesn't change perceptively. So you think, well, what difference does it make? But it's that, um, you know, incremental steps of losing a democracy or losing rights or, losing a living standard or whatever it might be, that's very difficult to counter because it moves relatively slowly. So it's easy to not pay attention. And I think, yeah. you know, each of us has a, a duty to actually pay attention. You know, you know as you're saying that, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself because a lot of the people that I took over on trips to that part of the world. They weren't particularly politically engaged in their own world. They were very church engaged. They were very involved in their religious community, but they weren't engaged in any kind of politics. Then they would come over there and they would see injustice writ large and also injustice that they, that, that they weren't a party to. So it's it's much easier to see when you're when you don't feel like you're directly involved. Like I, it's it's very easy for me to to criticize police brutality in Australia. Um, you know, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> you know, it's different when it's here, and I'm I'm a taxpayer. Yeah, you know, so, so, it's different. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If someone else's compensation, it's like yeah, this is this is injustice. Yeah. And, and and that's you know and so people would when we would bring people to to the Middle East they would they would see the the horror of occupation and it was very easy for them to go like this is wrong this shouldn't be done you know they 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 weren't thinking about Black Lives Mattering they weren't thinking about women being you know sexually assaulted and you know they weren't thinking about you know poverty in the United States they weren't thinking about immigration policy there no no it was but like they could really see how Israel was mistreating those migrant Bedouin um, you know whatever mm. so, but 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 the thing I realized was is that they, they those were the people like me who would ask what what can we do and sometimes they would come back and they would be 
trying to, to organize people to be interested in the occupation or interested in what was happening. And I'm, I'm, it's just dawning on me that, you know how they say, like, if you want to get something done, ask a busy person? Like, because the reason they're busy is because they've been doing a lot of things. They're good at doing things. Like, they can probably fit you in and do something. The person <laughs> who hasn't been doing anything probably doesn't know how to do anything. Mm. And I think, like, if somebody, was, if somebody was more in touch with the suffering in their own community, then when they heard about what was happening in the occupied territories, I think they would probably be a better candle lighter and they would probably be a better advocate and they would probably be more able to be politically engaged. And so ironically, I, I sort of like listening to you, I'm like, I wonder how many people are very in tune with the suffering of people far off, but aren't very in tune with the suffering and the, that's happening in their own community. Mm. Um, doing this community mental health thing, I've become really aware of the suffering in my neighborhood. Mm. You know, th these are people that live within a couple of miles of me in many cases, but they live in a completely different world. Mm. Um, and so a part of me sort of, says, gosh, I feel like the people that could be the most helpful to you, the Americans or the Australians or the, you know, the, the, the people who aren't from there, the people that could be most helpful, ironically, would be the people that were, whose hands were dirty and whose feet were on the ground where they are, because then they would know what, they would know how to, to interpret what you're telling them. Just like those black delegations that came said, oh, I, I get this because they were more, their feet were dirty where they were so they could recognize the dirt where you are. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's definitely the case. But another point though, too, is I think that if those that aren't busy, aren't active, don't get busy and don't get active, none of us should be surprised if we lose over time, many of the rights and protections we think are guaranteed. Nothing is guaranteed. And it's not, whilst it's so important that the busy people keep and get busy, um, it's also important that the less engaged uh, get engaged, yeah. not, you know, not about getting engaged here, but in, as you say, in their own communities. And, you know, one thing doing this work that has struck me so much is wherever you live in, in the West, how much is done with our money and in our names that almost none of us would agree with. Um, so, I'm, you know, I'm, you mentioned I'm from Australia. I'm, all, I'm half English as well. And I always think of it, um, Britain in this regard too. You know, Britain's very good at talking about the rule of law and principles, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, um, you know, we are selling an obscene amount of weapons to Saudi Arabia. Um, Whilst I would imagine there's almost nothing in terms of values and principles that the average British person has in common with, you know, the, the rulers in Saudi Arabia, you know, we have no shared values almost. And yet we're quite, we, we don't get upset or engaged at all when our um, government, you know, sells, um, you know, one load after another of weapons to Saudi Arabia that are then used in in Yemen. And I think you can, whichever country you're from, you can see examples of this where, you know, we engage in 
policy decisions that almost none of us would agree with. And I think this comes back to what I was talking about, that if too many of us are inactive, don't be surprised if a very small number of people with a very particular interest that you may not, might not agree with are dictating what the policy is of your country. Um, and it may not represent you at all. And you know we have to get, that's why I say we have to get more engaged to ensure that our policies do reflect our so-called values, or, or at least, you know, we bridge that gap a little bit, close that gap. And so I, I, want, I, want you to, I want you to speak to this too, but one of the things that strikes me about your work is that you don't have a large end the occupation, like, you know, the, you're, that's not the name of the organization, end the occupation, or stop the oppression, you know, it's military court watch. It's like, we do this, like, we, we care about this, uh, lots of things, but we, we watch this one thing and we do this one thing. Yeah, I, I, think I think that there's something really profound about sort of saying, go ahead, Sawa. I was just going to say that it's very important to be focused and to, you know, one uh, important way to kind of, uh, be successful is to pick your target very carefully. And the smaller it is, the uh, more likely that you will maybe reach that target. You know, the broader you are, the more, you know, the bigger you are, the less effective you will be. And as you said, we are a very focused organization. And, you know, yeah. we all we're saying, we're not, you're not telling anybody to sympathize with this side or that side. And we're not even saying that, you know, children are innocent. All we're saying is that every child is entitled to their rights, like the right to have a lawyer prior to interrogation and the right to silence, you know, which many Americans will relate to. Uh, that's all we're saying. And um, I must say that within these very small um, focused targets, you know, some positive outcomes have emerged over the years. Like I think Gerard can talk more concretely about the uh, achievements, you know, not only because of our work, but because of the, uh, you know, many other boy voices who sing with us, you know, the same song. B before you do that, I, I guess I just, I think what you just said about focus is is really important for another reason. And that is that, if somebody just says, get engaged, get more engaged, there's so many topics and there's so many things. And especially in a country as big as ours, it, it becomes overwhelming. Mm -hmm. You think like, I can't, I can't understand all those issues. And so, but what I, what I seem to notice is every time I talk to somebody like you, who has a, a very tight focus, that becomes the lens through which they also see all the other issues coming to bear, the environmental issue. You're like, well, you know what? It, it touches because the way we're consuming things, that, that global warming, that matters in the, in the occupied country. That affects why Israeli does this or that, the, why the settlements are doing this. Like everything, everything touches everything. Mm -hmm. Everything is connected. And so if you pick one focus, you're not excluding everything else. You're simply choosing the lens through which you'll see everything else. And exactly. All the people, yeah, I've had a, a, it's funny, I have a guy, I had a, I had a guy on the show um, 
last year, maybe a couple years ago, um, he was a labor organizer among migrant farm workers in Florida, um, the Immokalee Workers Cooperative. And he was an amazing person doing amazing work, trying to get rights for people who are very, very oppressed. You know, these, these immigrants, undocumented immigrants who are doing all, picking all the crops. And, and that was just his, like, and, but I feel like if I put the three of you in a room together, you would have a famously, you would have so much to talk about and so many shared um, experiences. You go, but he's, his work is nothing like our work. And I go like, yeah, but it's everything like your work because his work is focused and it's filled with hope. And so is yours. And it's interesting because he said to me, he said he didn't grow up religious, but he said he came across the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Mm-hmm. And he said the first time he read that, he said, he said it's a, it, it's, it became his scripture. It became, it became his, you know, and, and it's funny because your work is, is some, somewhat grounded in, you know, international law and internet, UN, UN declarations and things. And he was like, that declaration is the, is the, is the clearest and most concise sort of explanation he had of his secular value system. Um, but I just think, I just think being focused, there's something about being focused that doesn't mean you exclude everything else. It just means that you see everything else through a particular lens. I think it's really helpful. All right, listen, I've, I've kept you on the, I kept you on this call for an hour and a half. Like I've, I'm not the world's best at this. So if, is there something important that I left out? Is there something important? I sh- you're like, damn it. Why didn't he ask us this? Like, you know, what, what, what do you wish we had talked about that we didn't talk about? I can't think of anything myself. Yeah, I think we touched on everything, the personal, the yeah. um, bigger issues. <laughs> yeah, it was great talking to you. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm so grateful. Lovely to see you. Thanks a lot. All right, so that's that. That's my conversation with Gerard and Salwa. As I am recording this outro, there's a ceasefire. We're back where we started, except a bunch of people are dead and Gaza is rubble again. Uh, and the tension is high. And when I talked to Salwa just recently, she just said, it's, it's, it's all it's like nothing is resolved. It's just, you did just crank up the volume. It's just going to be bad again. And uh, I'm not here to bum you out. I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you that there really are people of goodwill who have very different interests and are sort of the conflict is built in. And the question we have to ask ourselves, I think, is how do we, remember I mentioned you, William Urey, he had this great uh, book called The Third Side that he wrote after getting to yes. And he said, in any two conflicts, in any conflict between two parties, there's a third party. And that's all the people on the outside of the conflict that aren't directly involved. And their job is to try to calm the conflict or to make it as constructive as possible because sometimes people won't have the same interests and they're, they're going to be conflict, but this conflicts can either be destructive or constructive. And people with different perspectives can actually, if, if not agree, they can at least compromise and come to a livable agreement. And he says, that's the job of the third side. And I think as Americans, 
we got to ask ourselves in this particular thing, are we being, are we being the third side or are we taking a side? And uh, what can we do that's the most helpful? And so hopefully this conversation has uh, piqued your interest in that stuff and introduced you to some people that you can really admire. And uh, either way, let me know what you think about it. Let me know if, if you're okay with it. Let me know what you didn't like about it. Let me know what you don't like about me. I can handle it. I can handle it. And you'll know that when you see me next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.